0: Welcome to the Sunday School Lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and it's good to be with you today. We are continuing our lessons from the Book of Romans. Now, these lessons are coming from the Nazarene Adult Quarterly for the spring quarter of 2021. And today's lesson is actually from May 9th. The title, A Living Sacrifice. And we'll be looking at Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 36. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. I want us to pray together Paul's prayer for the Philippians. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Now, when you look at the book of Romans, you can see that it's organized into two very distinct sections. In chapters 1 through 11, Paul is describing this incredible salvation that God has prepared for us. He's telling us how we are made right with God, and this is through faith in Jesus Christ. In the last part of Romans, chapters 12 through 16, Paul switches from theology to more of practical living. He's giving instructions how we actually live out this salvation day to day. And today we are looking at at the segue that Paul makes from chapter 11 to chapter 12. As we come to the end of chapter 11, those chapters describing this incredible salvation that's available. Paul cries out, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? You know, as Paul contemplates this magnificent work of grace that God is doing in our hearts. Paul overflows with praise, with wonder. It's almost as if he's reveling in the sheer glory of God. And he comes to one conclusion. When we realize the true scope of what God has done for us, the only reasonable response on our part is to offer ourselves back to God, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, in this first part of Romans, Paul has presented us with really a shocking truth. The Jewish people, those that God had chosen for himself, the ones that God had entered into a covenant with, they were missing out on God's righteousness because they had rejected Jesus Christ. They had rejected the only means of righteousness. Now, today, the split between Judaism and Christianity, it's a long-standing reality. You know, we consider Christianity and Judaism to be two completely separate religions. And as Christians we generally take the view that Christianity has replaced Judaism, that now it's the church who is the chosen instrument of God. The church is the mechanism of his salvation. So we don't really see how shocking it is that the Jewish people would miss out on God's salvation. It's hard for us to understand how strange this would have sounded to those who were hearing Paul's message for the first time. Now, we often have this mistaken idea that Paul was deliberately trying to start a new religion, that he was encouraging the Jewish people to abandon the law to convert to being Christians. But Paul himself continued to be a practicing Jew. He continued to observe the Jewish law. Paul considered himself Jewish, and we can see this from his experience at the end of Acts Paul had returned to Jerusalem one last time. While there, he reported to the church fathers what he was doing among the Gentiles, his missionary work. And they were rejoicing with Paul over what God was doing. But then they tell Paul there's a problem. There is a rumor going around that Paul is telling those Jews who live out among the Gentiles that Paul is telling them to forsake the law. So the, the, the uh, fathers of the church come up with a plan. Paul is to join with four other men who are in Jerusalem and who have taken a vow. And together they will go through all of the temple ceremonies. They will purify themselves. They'll follow the laws. They'll pay their vows. And this is specifically to show that Paul is an observant Jew, that he does keep the law, that these rumors are wrong. In Acts 17, 24, we read, Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself observe and guard the law. And so Paul agreed to do this. So he must have been in agreement with the law. We see Paul continuing to be a law-abiding Jew. Now, Paul did make it clear, following the law saved no one. Both Jew and Gentile are saved only through the salvation that comes through Christ. And Paul does not believe that the Gentiles need to convert to Judaism and begin following the law. But this doesn't mean that the Jewish people stop being Jewish. So you can see why the church at Rome would be puzzled. Paul is telling them many of the Jewish people will miss out on God's salvation because they refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. So the question from the church What actually is God doing here? Their understanding for centuries had been that the Jewish people were God's chosen people. The Jewish people were the instrument God was using to bring His righteousness to this world. And it was through obedience to the law. Now, Paul is saying God's plan all along was to bring righteousness through Jesus Christ. The law never was intended to make us righteous. It was to point the way to Christ. So what does all of this mean? Now, today, we have no problem with this idea of salvation coming through Christ rather than the law. The standard view of most Christians is, while the Jewish people were the original chosen people, Christians have now superseded them. We are God's chosen people. And so the Jews are no longer part of God's redemptive plan. God has moved on to the Christian church. God has no more use for the Jewish people. Now, if they want to convert to Christianity, God will still accept them. But we tend to see Jews as Jews as not being relevant to God's plans. But have we taken this farther than we should? Has God really moved on from His original covenant with the Jewish people? Does God have no more use for the Jewish people? Now, these are questions that the church in Rome is struggling with, And Paul wants them to understand what God is doing. If they fail to understand this, if they fail to realize God's plans, if they take the simplistic view that God has done away with His covenant relationship with the Jewish people, that God has rejected the Jewish people to start over with the Gentiles, they're liable to fall into two serious errors. First, they're likely to become conceited. Paul writes, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. It would be easy for spiritual arrogance to creep in, for the Gentiles to begin viewing themselves as superior, to assume they were receiving salvation because of some inherent quality in themselves, because of who they were or what they were doing. And Paul does not want to see this spiritual arrogance take hold. He wants them to see clearly what God is doing. Secondly, if God rejected His first covenant with the Jewish people, would He at some point reject a second covenant with the Gentiles? If God had put away the Jewish people, would He at some point put away the Gentiles and move on? The question becomes, what does all of this tell us about the faithfulness of God? Is God faithful to His Word? And Paul wants there to be no doubt. A God who goes back on His Word is not the God that Paul serves. Paul writes, God's gifts and His call are irrevocable. So Paul is teaching here about the role of the Jewish people in God's plan of salvation. And he wants to make sure they understand this. It's something that we need to make sure we understand today. And a lot of Christians do misunderstand this we don't really consider the Jewish people to be God's chosen people anymore. At least not in the sense that they have a continuing role to play as Jews, a role in God's ongoing work of salvation. We see Jewish people as just another group that follows a false religion and needs to be converted. We believe God has moved on and raised up the Christians in their place. If they want to convert and stop being Jews, that's fine. God will accept them. But we really believe God has no more use for them as Jews. But when we take this approach, it's easy for us to become conceited. And it justifies our mistreatment of the Jewish people. And that's not the teaching that Paul is presenting here. According to Paul, God has not written off the Jewish people. He has not abandoned them. He still has a role for them to play in his plans for this world. And Paul refers to this as a mystery. And I have to admit, I don't know exactly what all Paul is talking about here. But I believe Paul is making it clear. God still has plans for the Jewish people as Jews. And how all this will work out, I'm not really sure. But Paul writes here, And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, I want to make it clear, as Paul did, that Jesus Christ is the only source of salvation for Jews and Gentiles. It's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that anyone is saved, that anyone can be justified and have their sins forgiven. A Jewish person who refuses to believe in Jesus cannot be saved. A Gentile who refuses to believe in Jesus cannot be saved. But somehow, Paul is saying here, God will restore the Jewish people back to their covenant relationship with Him. This casting off of the Jewish people is only temporary. Now, the church in Rome is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. It's crucial that they understand they both have a role to play in God's plans. God has brought in the Gentiles, but He has not written off the Jews. Now, Paul knows what he's been saying is difficult to understand. He writes, As far as the gospel is concerned, they, meaning the Jewish people, are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. The supreme irony that the Jewish people who were so zealously seeking God's salvation, that these had missed out while the Gentiles, who had never sought salvation... They were the ones who found it. All of this tends to bring up questions. What exactly is God doing? Well, Paul has uh, several key ideas that he wants them to grasp about God's plan for salvation and how the Jews and the Gentiles fit into this. First, Paul wants them to understand God has not lost control of history. God's redemption has not gone off the rails. He's not playing catch-up here. You know, Scripture tells us over and over, God was at work before the history of the world, before the world began. God was at work in the history of the Jewish people. God is still at work. You know, God always had a plan. God had planned out His redemption even before this world began. It's not as if events caught God by surprise and God is having to make adjustments that He's coming up with new plans because the old ones didn't work. The plan God has in place, this plan involving the Jews and the Gentiles, this has always been God's plan. This hardening of the Jewish people, this is no accident. God has a purpose in what's happening to the Jewish people. It's for the specific purpose that the Gentiles will be brought in. Their hardening is only temporary. It will not last forever. At some point, God will bring them back. Paul writes, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, Paul wants them to know, God's purposes cannot be thwarted. They cannot be denied. He writes, for God's gift and His call are irrevocable. John Piper writes that, God's design and guidance of history cannot fail. What God has ordained will come to pass. So what this means, God has shaped all of history according to His plans. When the Jews are disobedient, when the Gentiles are obedient, all of this is shaped according to God's plan. John Piper goes on to write, God has designed and guided history, both in its disobedience and its obedience so that in the end, it will most fully display the reliability of His promises and the magnificence of His mercy. And these are two things that Paul is keying on here. First, the reliability of God's promises. God had made a promise to the Jewish people, and Paul wanted us to know He will fulfill that promise. He writes, "...as it is written, the deliverance will come from Zion." He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul wanted there to be no mistake. God had a plan for the Jewish people. He had made them a promise. He had established a covenant. And God would be faithful to that covenant. And then Paul wants to key here on the magnificence of God's mercy. He wants the church to grasp this key fact. The core of God's relationship with man is mercy. God's design for mankind, His intent, is not to punish. It's not to display His wrath. But God is intent on showing His mercy. Now you can think, this concept really is incredible. That at the very center of God's relationship with mankind, the very essence is mercy. Paul's message in his dealings with the Jewish people, in his dealings with the Gentiles, it's God's mercy all the way through. Everything God is doing, all that he has put in place, is so that he can demonstrate his mercy. The Gentiles, who once were disobedient to God, they have received mercy, but so have the Jews. Paul writes, For God has bound everyone over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy On them all so you think of this God does not seize upon our disobedience as a reason to blast us out of existence instead God uses our disobedience as an opportunity to show the sheer depth the intensity of his mercy and if we could only grasp this think how it would change our attitude towards God Paul wants us to realize when we look at how God has acted in history we get a glimpse of God's glory. It leads us to realize the true vastness of God's wisdom, God's knowledge. We see the truth of what Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is Paul's message. His ways are higher than our ways. We get an inkling of this greatness of God when Paul cries out, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Now, Paul had begun this section talking about a mystery. God's actions in history, his actions to provide salvation, These are so complex, we can have only the faintest understanding. So, how are we to deal with mystery? What is our response to be in a situation where we can grasp that God is operating, but we can't really understand it? We can't understand exactly what He's doing. How are we to respond? Well, Paul leads us here through a series of steps. Step one. We recognize that all things are from Him and through Him and for Him. You know, Paul writes, all things are from God and through God. God is the source of it all. He's the originator. He's responsible for providing us with everything that we have, whether it's our health, our prosperity, our careers, our families, uh, our material possessions, Nothing of what we have comes from ourselves. It's all given to us. And then Paul points out that all things are for God. Everything exists for God's glory. The purpose of everything that was created is to bring glory to God. All things should serve to promote God, to demonstrate His excellence. Now, in America, including the American church... You know, we have a huge problem with this feeling that somehow we are responsible for what we have. We feel like God has very little to do with it. You can see this attitude expressed in uh, the, the character portrayed by the actor Jimmy Stewart. He made a movie called Shenandoah, and it was about a family back during this time of the Civil War. And in this movie, he gathers his family around the Thanksgiving table and he offers a prayer. But I want you to listen to what his prayer says. Jimmy Stewart's character says, Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested it. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done all it ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel but we thank you just the same. Now, that's the attitude that so many of us take. We really see all that we have as a result of our hard work, our talent, our abilities. We don't really stop and think that all of this is from God and all of it is intended to be for God's glory. Now, step two, once we recognize that all is from God, all is for God, then we realize no one can give a gift to God No one can put us in his debt, can put God in the place where God owes us. Paul writes, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? We have no right to expect anything from God. We have no right to demand to be treated in specific ways, to make assumptions about how God is to treat us, what God is to do for us. Really, this is entitlement. The belief that we are inherently deserving of special treatment. The idea that God owes us. John Piper writes, If you ever start to feel entitled in yourself to the blessings of Christ, you are falling away from grace. And that is so true. Entitlement leads us to disappointment with God rather than delight in God. Now, once we realize no one can give a gift to God, we also realize No one can give counsel to God. No one can tell God how he should operate. You know, we often really reserve the right to judge God. We have this feeling. We don't say it out loud a lot of times. But we have this idea that God should meet our standards. That God should operate according to our rules. Now, as American Christians, we can be very presumptuous in this in expecting God to be the God that we want Him to be. Step four, once we realize that we can't give a gift to God, that we can't tell God how to run things, we realize His ways and judgments are unsearchable and inscrutable to our finite minds. And again, a lot of times we have this unspoken assumption that we should be able to figure out why God is acting in a specific way. And if we can't figure it out, somehow that it's not right, that uh, that could not be the norm. But really, we have to stop and think, do we want a God that we can understand? Think of what that would mean. If God were simple enough for me to understand Him, what kind of God would He be? Now, Paul wraps all of this up by saying, based on all of this, our only response is to give glory to God to recognize God as truly glorious he writes to him be the glory forever amen so god's glory is the goal of everything all that's created exists to reflect his glory now we we find it hard a lot of times to define god's glory but it's the idea that god's greatness god's beauty god's perfection exceeds anything that we can imagine. In everything He does, in everything He is, God is beyond description. Paul Tripp writes, God is the great other, in a category of His own, beyond our ability to estimate, to understand or describe. Now, the glory of God really is the holiness of God on display for all of creation to apprehend. Uh, John Piper writes, It's the going public of God's holiness. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and the greatness of His manifold perfections. Now, we've heard the statistics over and over. Although the church claims to have beliefs and values that are different from this culture that surrounds us, when it comes to how we actually live as Christians, Many times there's very little difference between the American church and the rest of society. All of us are awash in the same lifestyle of addictions, of sin. John Piper writes, One of the main reasons that the world and the church are awash in all of this is that our lives are intellectually and emotionally disconnected from infinite soul-staggering grandeur. You know, this is the essence of seeing God and seeing God's glory. We are staggered by it. And when we are staggered by God's glory, it makes a difference in our lives. It makes a difference in how we live. You know, we're no longer content to to live in this same world or same way as the world around us. Now, once we get a, a true glimpse of God's holiness, Paul writes our only reasonable response is worship to do anything else is foolishness it's to act the fool in in an earlier chapter in romans romans chapter 1 paul writes for although they knew god they neither glorified him as god nor gave thanks to him but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened although they claimed to be wise they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being. So, we are called to worship, to recognize the glory of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is why we were created. You know, worship, according to J. Vernon McGee, is... To reflect back to God what we think He's worth. And so, worship is really displaying the worth of God, and God is infinitely worthy. So, our only response is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, set aside for His purposes, for His use. Now, Paul tells us two things here. First, How do we offer ourselves as living sacrifices? We do it by not conforming to the patterns of this world. Now, this could also be translated as conforming to the patterns of this age. And so what really Paul is talking about here, the patterns of this age, is the philosophy of the world around us, how this culture thinks, the pattern of thinking that it adopts its values, its assumptions, its priorities. I like how the, the version, the message, translates this. It says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. And really, you know, that is the problem. We've gotten so used to the idea of the culture around us that we fit into it without even thinking about it. The world has its normal. And we as Christians adopt this same normal without even giving it a glance. We as Christians are called to be countercultural. We hear this word and and we think about, well, you know, opposing gay marriage and uh, LGBTQ issues and things like this. But to be countercultural goes far beyond this. Really, you have to stop and think, Are we that much different from the world in how we think? And I want to give you an example. Jesus told a parable of a man he called the rich fool. And this was a a wealthy man, a well-to-do man. And one year this farmer grows such a bumper crop that it's way too much for him to use. It's more food than he could possibly eat. It's even more food than he could possibly store. His barns are literally bursting at the seams. Now, the response from him is to say, Well, I don't have room in my barns. I've got so much stuff. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll sit back and I'll take it easy for the rest of my life. And God calls him a fool. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to ask, you know, why would God call him a fool? This is a man who had an unexpected windfall, who received great material benefits, and he made plans to store it away so that he could relax and enjoy the rest of his life. It, when we look at this, this is exactly what the American dream is. It's to store up all of this stuff while we're working so that we can retire and have enough to live out the rest of our lives in comfort where we can have enough to enjoy ourselves, do whatever we want to do. You know, we're told that's the American dream. And the church accepts that just as much as the world around us. You know, it's become our normal way of thinking. If we have too much stuff, we don't look to see what God wants us to do with it. We don't stop and consider that maybe He has plans for it. Instead, we build bigger barns. Now, we don't build bigger barns literally. What we do is we go out and we rent self-storage units. So when our houses fill up with way too much stuff, we don't stop accumulating stuff. We just rent another space to store it all. So we can see our thinking is so conformed to this world. We see it as the norm. We can no longer see it as unusual. And so we have to ask ourselves, Are we conforming to the pattern of this world and thinking nothing of it, seeing it as just the normal way of operating? Do we live as the world does? We don't drink, we don't do drugs, we don't carouse around, but do we accept basically the same lifestyle? Now, Paul also tells us that we worship not only through uh, the forsaking the pattern of this world, but through the renewing of our minds, we allow the Spirit to renew us, to make us think as God thinks, to have His priorities, His values. And it's really something that we need the Spirit for. It's not it's not something that we do on our own. Now, Paul goes on to give us examples of how this A renewing of our minds happens in the last part of Romans. He tells us things like, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. Honor one another above yourselves. Bless those who persecute you. Do not repay evil for evil. Each of us should please their neighbors for their own good. And so the Spirit can can work through us to renew our minds to actually give us the mind of Christ. And this is the worship that we are called to. When this happens, then we reflect the glory of God. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. So as we look at this, we look at the world around us and we truly, we can easily recognize uh, the warped and crooked generation that we live in. What Paul is telling us is once we've seen the true glory of God, our only response is to worship Him, to reflect this glory back to Him by casting aside uh, the notions, the attitude of this world and being transformed in our thinking so that we are made to be like Him. As we go throughout this next week, uh, I, I hope that you would keep these things in mind and think over what it is that God wants to do in your life. How does He want you to be transformed in your mind so that you can reflect His glory and, and His image? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank You for uh, this wonderful salvation that you have created and you've put in place and you've made possible for us. We join with Paul in saying this is a mystery. There's a lot of it that we don't understand. But what we do see, it staggers our minds when we realize, Lord, the beauty of your grace, your goodness, your holiness that's put on display. We ask that you would help us to, to not conform to the patterns of this world, to, to, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we may truly worship you and reflect your glory back to you in the middle, Lord, of this crooked and perverse generation. We give you praise in your name. Amen.